Good morning, and welcome to The Morning Fix. I'm Amy Shepard, and I'm here with my co-host, Julie Dye. Today, we are speaking to professors Steve Chase and Byron Yu of Carnegie Mellon University. Doctors Chase and Yu focus their research on brain-computer interfaces. Their work explores the intersection of neuroscience, engineering, and machine learning, and we're certainly excited to learn more from them. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Chase and Dr. Yu. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks for having us. Professors Chase and Yu, we love interviewing scholars and members of academia as it informs so much of what we do in the medical technology field. Tell us about your respective backgrounds and how you got to your current roles. So I started off in engineering. Uh, I did my undergraduate uh, work in electrical engineering and computer sciences at UC Berkeley. And when I got to graduate school, I was looking for a project and actually deciding on whether I wanted to just get a master's and go work in industry or pursue a PhD. And it was at that point that I was fortunate enough to uh, meet my eventual PhD advisor, Krishna Shanoi, who introduced me to the field of neuroscience. And I remember distinctly at that time how I was waking up before my alarm clock rang because I couldn't wait to get into lab and uh, because of the curiosity that I had for how the brain worked. And so at that moment, I realized, hey, maybe I found something that I'm passionate about that I wanted to uh, pursue my PhD in and uh, continue to study beyond that point. Yeah. So similar to Byron, I was uh, also not into neuroscience. I did applied physics as my undergraduate degree. And I, I came into neuroscience a little bit later than, than Byron did. I was actually in a PhD program in electrical and computer engineering, designing semiconductor lasers. And I was a, a first year PhD student. And, and one day it was my turn to run journal club for the week. And in journal club, you're supposed to find a, a paper from the literature and present it to your lab group and, and talk about how it re- relates to your research. And I remember finding a paper about silicon photo detectors, about uh, electrical chips that can detect light. And these are things that we could make in the lab. And I was reading up on that work to present it to the lab group. And I remember thinking to myself, well, why can't yeah, uh, uh, you know, how does an eye compare to a silicon photo detector? What can we make in the lab and how does it compare to the eye? And I, my thoughts were going along this direction. I, and I thought, well, why can't we build an eye? And you don't have to think about that question for very long before you realize it's because you can't plug it in. And so I started reading about nerve electrical interfaces and I got really interested in this topic that wasn't what my PhD research was on in the slightest. And, and so at some point I, I went to my advisor very nervously. And I said, I've, I've fallen in love with a, a new research field on nerve electrical interfaces. And uh, I'd like to, to switch advisors and, and, and focus my efforts on that. And my advisor was super supportive in that endeavor. So I actually switched, uh, switched fields. I went into biomedical engineering, uh, switched schools and, uh, and started research that was much more neuroscience related. It's such fascinating, really fascinating topic. And, you know, I'd love to know, and our, I'm sure our audience would love to know a little bit more about what exactly is a brain-computer interface. Sure. So uh, a brain-computer interface is really any connection where you can uh, record some aspect of brain activity, and then you use that aspect of brain activity to control a device directly. And that device could be a cursor on a computer screen. It could be a robotic uh, arm and hand. It could be a wheelchair. Um, 
But uh, yeah, a brain-computer interface is really a really broad catch-all category of devices. And the ones Byron and I work on are are motor brain-computer interfaces. So these record some aspect of neural activity and control a device with it. And for the devices uh, we use, uh, we like to use what's called invasive brain-computer interface. So the idea here is we're, we're actually recording directly from neurons, usually in the primary motor cortex, uh, and and using the, the electrical activity of some 100 neurons or so that you're recording and use that to control uh, a, a, a computer cursor or a robotic arm. And the idea behind these devices is uh, for medical use, is to be able to design something so that uh, patients who have lost the ability to control their limbs through injury, say spinal cord injury or disease, uh, so patients usually who are quadriplegic, uh, can now have a device that allows them to interact with their environment and regain some of those motor control abilities. Yeah, truly life, life-changing life potential, right? Indeed. What are some of the other applications? You know, you mentioned a few, um, but what are some of the other applications that, you know, this might impact in the medical device space and rehabilitation, et cetera? Where, where else could we see this, you know, become... Um, more prevalent in the next however many years? Yeah, this is great that you're asking uh, because uh, what Steve just described is uh, perhaps the most common use of brain-computer interfaces today. And uh, we've realized, and this is uh, joint work with uh, Professor Aaron Batista at the University of Pittsburgh, our three groups have worked together uh, very closely in the last uh, 10 plus years. And we have realized that there is uh, a use of brain-computer interfaces that has not received much attention that is perhaps just as important as uh, the use that Steve just mentioned for for the use of brain-computer interfaces to help people who are paralyzed. And this is the use of a brain-computer interface as a tool to study how the brain works. And in particular, what we have been studying is how the brain learns. Uh, For example, uh, when we want to learn uh, a new physical uh, activity, like a new dance, or to learn to play golf, or if we want to learn a new language, or a kid wants to learn math, what changes in our brain when we learn? And it turns out that a brain-computer interface is a very good tool to study how the brain learns, because you can think about giving a subject a brain-computer interface, just like you would give someone a tennis racket and say, hey, go practice with this tennis racket or brain-computer interface. And lo and behold, if you give the subject time to practice with the brain-computer interface, they become better at using it. And so we can study what changes in the brain then when they get better at using it. And so we, we gain insights into how the brain learns. One of the articles that we found was about the optimization framework. I study about I study frameworks all day long. And I was fascinated by that in relation to human learning. Um, Delve into that a little bit more so our audiences understand that concept. Yeah. So there are a lot of parallels uh, in uh, when when we see a subject learning to use a brain-computer interface and when uh, a person is, uh, you know, learning uh, a skill in everyday life, as I was mentioning, uh, whether it be a new sport or a new dance or a new language. And it turns out that there are interesting links with artificial intelligence where machines are learning, 
right? So, you know, we've seen uh, how machines can be, can learn to play chess or uh, your self-driving car, right? There is a process by which uh, this artificial agent can learn to do something that is seemingly intelligent. And it turns out that when you look at what's inside these artificial intelligence machines, there's a lot in common in what happens when they learn compared to when we learn. However, there is still a lot uh, that uh, we see in the brain that we do not see in these artificial uh, intelligence uh, agents when they learn. And so this is part of the mystery of the human brain that we are seeking to understand, which is, for example, one thing that we do well, that machines don't do well currently, is learning to perform multiple tasks, right? So for example, uh, you know, we can learn to uh, play tennis, and at the same time, we can learn to uh, speak Spanish, right? We don't freak, suddenly forget to play tennis, how to play tennis, when, when we learn to speak Spanish. Whereas current uh, artificial agents may be able to learn one task really, really well, but when they learn another task on top of it, then it is possible that they might forget what they learned in a previous task. And so uh, herein uh, lies uh, some interesting uh, aspects of the brain that we want to understand um, you know, how it works, how, how the brain, the human brain is able to do this, but artificial brains are not able to currently. Well, that's so interesting because I would have thought it would be just the opposite. You know, it, it, humans have a hard time multi, multi, multitasking, right? We can certainly work, learn one skill and the next and the next, but sometimes we do have a hard time doing them all together, right? So I would have thought it would be just the opposite that you could get an artificial intelligence to do those multitasks. But what you're saying is it actually doesn't necessarily work that way. Yeah, so the comparisons are very interesting because you're pointing out a situation in which an artificial agent is way better at uh, throughput, at parallelization of tasks than we human brains are, right? So it's interesting right, to think right. about the ways in which the human brain is more capable than a computer currently, right? And then other ways, like what you just pointed out, where a computer is more capable than a human brain. Yeah. And certainly things too, like, um, you know, I, I, I'm assuming this is correct, but I would think that an artificial agent, those are things that are not capable of um, tracking emotion or nuance in, you know, somebody's affect, right? So, you know, those, you know, hopefully in, the, in those instances, we will never be replaced um, by, you know, artificial intelligent beings. That is the hope. Yeah. Well, you know, um, before six months ago, um, Amy and I had never really delved into something like brain computer interfaces and really didn't even know what it meant. Um, and in fact, I think one of our episodes is titled, What the Heck is a Brain-Computer Interface? Um, we, we got to talk with Neuralink, which is one of Elon Musk's founded companies. And so, you know, they are trying to take research, right? And make it into something that can be used today. And so I'd love for you to talk about, um, you know, translational research and how, you know, some of the work that you are doing, you, you know, be able to work with industry or on, you know, jointly funded clinical trials, you know, how do we get some of your research into the world? How, how does that work? Yeah, that's a, it's a really 
critical point in, in all of the biomedical industry field is how do you get work out of the lab and into the clinic where it belongs? And, and, and companies, um, Elon Musk's Snurlink company is a really great example of that. He has the resources to really solve some of those critical engineering challenges uh, that, that a lot of times can't be solved in an individual lab or can't be solved under, you know, federal funding limits and that sort of thing. Uh, and, and industry and philanthropic organizations as well serve a, a really nice bridge to try and, and take the final steps on that product development after federal funding has shown proof of concept, after a lot of the science has been worked out, but a lot of the engineering nuance is not quite there yet. The reliability, the manufacturing capabilities, um, the, you know, the, uh, is to make sure that it can be done reliably and cheaply enough. Uh, and so uh, I think Neuralink is a really nice example of how industry can step in and, and help those technologies take those final steps. Now, aside from Neuralink, do you know of other companies that are um, working on, you know, getting things to market? Or do we already have, you know, some form of this out there in the world today? Or are we still not there yet? For invasive brain-computer interfaces, uh, we're not there yet. So they're still in clinical trials, uh, and it's not uh, an off-the-shelf device yet that uh, a typical patient would have access to. There are alternative uh, technologies that people are attempting to develop that don't go as invasive. They don't require brain surgery. Instead, they try and read neural activity from external to the scalp, maybe based on EEG signals that you can pick up just with sensors that are placed on the scalp. And there's an active amount of research trying to take those signals and use them to control devices with the same degree of fidelity that you can get from the invasive devices. Uh, right now, that research is not quite there, but if those signals can be decoded with the same reliability and the same sort of signal to noise ratios that you could get, uh, where patients could reliably control devices with them, I think that would ultimately be the way to go because uh, then you could uh, have a device that is much safer to use and much safer uh, for, for patients. Uh, so I would say that there's a lot more industry interest currently in those less invasive devices. They have bigger market potential. Uh, they're easier to perform research with. Uh, so currently there's more industry interest in, in those kinds of devices. And so there are a few companies working on that as well. Uh, and, and the hope is just that, you know, we can push forward on all of these fronts and ultimately come up with products that work for the entire range of patients. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. Going back to research professors, we found the article about cracking under pressure, even in the animal, animal kingdom, to be quite interesting. Talk about the connection between neural activity and kinematics as it relates to human performance. Sure. So one of the things when designing brain-computer interfaces where you're trying to tap out what is the intended movement that this person is attempting to make? So you need to know all of the sources that can affect how the neural activity represents that movement. And one of the things we've noticed is that emotional state can affect the encoding of that movement actually quite drastically. Um, and, and so 
we'd like to understand how this encoding works from both from a basic science perspective because it's an interesting feature of how our motor system works and also from a clinical perspective because we need to understand it if we're going to be able to design devices that work through a range of emotional states that don't just break down when a, a subject gets upset or something like that. Uh, and so we got interested in this question of how does motivation, which is one example of an uh, emotional state, how does motivation affect the neural representation of movement? And in humans, there's some really interesting relationship between motivation and movement. And I'll give you an example. Imagine that you're putting a golf ball into a cup and maybe you set it up so that you're somewhat successful. Maybe you're successful 70% of the time at putting that golf ball into the cup. And then I could do something. I'd say, I will offer you a dollar each time you can successfully get that golf ball into the cup. And most people will do a little bit better when there's a monetary incentive on the line. And then I could say, all right, I'm going to give you $5 each time you're able to put that golf ball into the cup. And most people will do even a little bit better. Maybe they'll get that ball into the cup 80% of the yeah. time when $5 is on the line. But then you can say, I will give you $1,000 each time you're able to get that ball into the cup. And surprisingly, most people will do worse under those situations. They will actually maybe get that ball into the cup 60% of the time instead of you know 80% where they ought to be operating at. And this is a really fascinating feature. It's been found, it's been reproduced in the lab with humans. And there's a lot of psychological theories out there about why this might be this interaction between the motivational systems of the brain and the motor control systems of the brain. And uh, for a while, a lot of the thinking was maybe, maybe people get too in their heads. They overthink the problem. And in that overthinking of it, they're able to mess themselves up. And so a natural question becomes, okay, well then maybe animals wouldn't exhibit these kinds of properties. Um, this is important because if you want to understand really the neuroscience of how this works, it's helpful to know if it's a unique feature of how humans encode movements, or if there's a generalized feature of how maybe mammals perform movement. And so we did some experiments. This is again in collaboration with Aaron Batista at the University of Pittsburgh, where we designed a, a motor task for monkeys to perform. And we offered them different amounts of reward. Uh, and they could see how much reward they would get if they successfully performed this reach and hit a target. And what we found is exactly what humans show, is that when the more reward you offer them, the better the animals would do, but only up to a point. Occasionally, rarely in about 5% of trials, we would offer them massive jackpot reward. And there you could see that the animals performed worse on average than they were capable of. And so this seems to us that this is a, a generalized feature of how the brain is organized. And there's really some basic neuroscience going on about how brainstem interacts with cortex in the control of movement that regulate the neural representation of movement across different motivational states. And so now we're trying to get a handle on the neuroscience of that aspect and understand first off how it works and then second off how we can design these clinical devices so that they are robust to those kinds of modulations.
So this could also be applied to basketball players at the free throw, free throw line, right? Um, you know, it's like, you know, making the big shot with that, all that pressure on is, um, you know, not always an easy thing to do. So that's, it's really fascinating that, you know, you found this in other primates too. Well, I don't know a whole lot about Carnegie Mellon University. Um, I went to school in the South um, at a state school, but I did follow Dr. Randy Pausch um, and I read his amazing book and it very much hit home with me because I had lost my father who was about Randy's age um, several years before that book came out. Um, but I'd love to know, does his legacy, you know, what is his legacy still, um, you know, within the department and at the university and, you know, how, how is his legacy living on there? That's a, that's a great question. And, and uh, Randy Pausch was uh, an inspiration. I, I first actually learned of the last lecture from my mother uh, and she saw it. She was just uh, um, blown away by it. It was inspirational to her. She passed away from cancer back in 2015. Um, so, uh, Randy Pouch, there's still, uh, some, uh, there's a bridge at, at Carnegie Mellon that, that connects, uh, the computer science building to main campus. It's called the Pouch Bridge. Uh, that's, and that's still there. I don't know how much the students, uh, tune into that legacy. Uh, Dr. Pouch was, they were probably about four when he passed away, I, I think at this, at this stage. So I don't know how much the students still remember it, but the faculty, I think, definitely do. And to me that the big take home, I mean, I, I never met him in person, um, but I've watched the last lecture and, and what really was inspiring to me about that lecture was how much he cared about the students, how much of himself he invested into his teaching. And to me, that's always been an inspiration. That's, that's how I should be with my students. That's how much of myself, that's the expectation I think. And I think it's a, it's a really, he set a high bar and it's one we strive to attain. And did Dr. Yu, did, did you have anything to add on that? No, I agree with everything that Dr. Chase just said. Yeah. Uh, Julie and I have discussed Dr. Pa Randy Pausch is you know, obviously at this point, well, I guess among some some populations is is somewhat of a celebrity. And if you watch the last lecture, it's so much more than uh, what he was studying studying at the time. I mean, he was such a uh, just he was such a force, and um, he transcended academia and just captivated audiences. So, and I think that's why. Um, and this was a, probably about a good 15 years ago. I think that's why his his presentation uh, went viral because you know he he put his rather complicated and um, esoteric research into really human terms that resonates with many audiences, and that's what made him so unique and special. So the fact that you are at the same institution uh, just shows the uh, just the incredible scholars that CMU uh, has, and I'm glad they're still honoring his legacy, and um, he still means a lot to, to the university. Well, doctors, Chase and you, thank you so much for your times, for your thoughts. This is one of the most, I would think, inspiring 
conversations that we've had. We've we've spoken with so many brilliant scholars and leaders. We always have one more fun question. I uh, almost forgot to ask. Since uh, you are here on The Morning Fix by 510K Cafe Podcast, we always love to ask our guests, what do you do for your morning fix? For me, it's simple and sweet. So uh, toast with jam, some cereal, something like that. Dr. Chase? Yeah, for me, uh, actually, the key part of my morning routine, is I live next to a beautiful wooded park. And my daughter and my wife and I, every morning, take the dog on about a three-quarter of a mile hike around that park. Uh, and it's a, it's a fantastic way to start the day. Love it. Well, thank you again. Your words are truly inspirational. Your, your work is, is certainly transforming uh, the medical industry, medical technology industry. So thank you again. Thank you. Thank you again for having us.